Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. You know, Scripture tells us, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So, my friends, let us have faith in each other. Let us not grow weary. Let us not lose heart. For there are more seasons to come, and there is more work to do. You probably recognized that voice as Hillary Clinton's. And that was an excerpt from the end of her 2016 concession speech, acknowledging that Donald Trump was the presumptive winner in the Electoral College. Trump's victory, and thus Clinton's loss, left many surprised, if not in shock. But that outcome was a reminder that, even in an age of advanced quantitative analysis of polling data, election results are sometimes not what we expect. As with the Democrats in 2016, Sometimes political parties lose elections that they expect to win. But what do they do next? That's the focus of a new book by Seth Maskett, professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Maskett's research areas include political parties, campaigns and elections, and polarization, and his new book is Learning from Loss, The Democrats, 2016-2020. to Maskett and I very recently chatted about the book and about contemporary elections. We also discussed and responded to the rapidly evolving political environment in the U.S. at this moment. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled Hard Knocks. So a lot of the research that I've done in the past and that I've been reading from others concerns the decisions that parties make, you know, whether that's things like who they end up nominating or what stances to take or what stances to abandon. Um, I'm always sort of I'm interested in the idea of parties as either coalitions or actors that can somehow make decisions. But all those those books, those decisions tend to assume that there's some sort of conversation that occurs within a a party before the decision that they that they look at an election result uh, and decide in, you know make some decisions about where where they went wrong um, things that they could have done better uh, different types of people they should have nominated different systems they should have for picking a nominee and I wanted to catch that conversation in the act of occurring I, I wanted to basically f- track a political party over a four-year period following its loss in an election to its in its nomination of a presidential candidate the next time around and just talk to people in lots of different aspects of the party and get a sense of how it goes about making a decision. And I had conceived of doing this in 2016. Honestly, I was thinking at the time about focusing on the Republicans because 
they had just had a really unusual nomination process um, that, you know, sort of like all the systems and norms that parties have developed just kind of fell apart that year for them. And they ended up with Donald Trump sort of against what it seemed like many party leaders want or wanted. And then they also seemed on track to lose that year, uh, at least from the polls. It looked like they were heading for a, an embarrassing and, and unnecessary loss. And I was thinking, wow, they're going to have an interesting conversation within that party after they lose. Um, and as they try and figure out, you know, what could we have done differently? Uh, do we need to make changes? Do we need something like superdelegates like the Democrats have? You know, what, what do we need to do to avoid this again? Obviously, they have not yet had that conversation. Yeah. Um, and it's it was instead Democrats who had this this really narrow and unexpected loss. And uh, they've been having this fascinating conversation about, uh, you know, what you know, what they need to be doing differently. And so that's that's the conversation I've ended up um, following. And uh, it's 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 been a fascinating journey. Well, and one of the things that I like about what I can see emerging in the book uh, early is the way in which you emphasize narrative as a way of thinking about how uh, a party makes sense of a loss. And one of the things that I'm interested in, not only as someone who just likes stories uh, in my personal and professional life, but as a psychologist, I was struck early in the book by the notion of confirmation bias, uh, because early on in the book, you talk about the ways in which uh, people tell stories about um why Clinton lost. And, and those stories um, uh, often have a kind of counterfactual element. That is, if she had spent more time in Wisconsin and Michigan, she would have actually won those states. But you, but you note that she spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania um, and put a lot of limited resources in Pennsylvania and still lost there by a margin comparable to, to how she lost in Wisconsin and Michigan. So it's not actually clear when you look at the data that both favor and disfavor that hypothesis. It's not clear that that would have actually been the case. And so it led me to think that when people are constructing these narratives, there may be a kind of confirmation bias where they, they construct a narrative that may fit with their preconceived notions. I wonder if that's something that you've thought about, or maybe you address it later in the book, but I haven't gotten there yet. I do get into that to some extent in the book. And that um, I, I was really kind of struck by that in the, con- in, in the process of speaking to all these, uh, these political activists. I just mentioned that I, you know, over the course of, of this research, there, there's a lot of different angles I take in, in this research, whether, you know, I'm, at some points I'm looking at campaign finance patterns and some voting behavior. But um, a lot of a lot of the effort in this book was focused on conversations with Democratic activists in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina and um, D.C. And I was really struck uh in many ways, sort of how pre moneyball a lot of these conversations were that that is um, there wasn 't always a lot of empirics uh, brought to bear in in sort of saying this is why I, you know we we definitely know that Hillary Clinton lost because of this. It was a lot of of intuition um, I mean, these yep. people these are people who've spent decades working in politics. They have in their gut a sense of, you know, what makes a candidate win or lose. And they saw things happening during the campaign. And some of them said, well, I don't I don't like the way this is going. Hillary Clinton isn't filling halls the way she should have or the way Barack Obama did. You know, they they had all these like intuitions that were telling them things. Um, And sometimes they sometimes they fall back on, I think, the narrative they were always going to have, no matter what happened. That is, you know, the party needs to do this. It needs to move in this direction. 
the people we're nominating are too liberal or they're too moderate or whatever. Um, for others, I think they, um, they actually changed their opinions from 2016. That is, they, the 2016 actually really shook some people up. It was so unexpected. And uh, Donald do you, do, Trump do, do, in particular do you have struck... An, do you have an example of that, either an individual or perhaps a, a segment within the uh, Democratic coalition? So uh, I spoke to this, I spoke to a woman in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, in, in early 2017. It was one of the, one of the early interviews I did. Um, she's, uh, been working on democratic presidential campaigns for like 30 years. Yeah. Um, and lifelong feminist. She worked for Hillary Clinton, both in 2016 and in 2008. Um, and I was just asking her, so well, what do you think from that election? What does the party need to do? She's like, uh, she's like, I can't believe I'm saying this. I think we need to nominate, um, uh, someone with raging masculinity next time around to beat Donald Trump. Uh, we need to nominate a guy. Um, and that's the only way we're going to win. And she's like, I can't, they're going to kick me out of the feminist club. I can't believe I'm saying this. And, and she didn't actually stick with that. Like I, I checked up with her a few years later and she changed her tune. She's like, yeah, I watched what happened in, in 2018. And actually like, I feel better about, you know, we can nominate a woman, we can nominate a person of color. Um, but, and she ended up working for Elizabeth Warren for a while. Yeah. But at least for a while, and then there were there were more than a few people who who voiced that opinion that like Hillary Clinton's loss really shook them, and it made them it made them sort of change their views about who they thought could win, and what it would take to actually get Donald Trump out of the White House, and it, and not, again not in a super empirical way, uh, more like a, a sense of gut feelings. So in uh, thinking about what's happening now, and so um, we're in a very dynamic environment right now. Uh, yep. So uh, it's uh, November 7th in the morning, uh, 2020. Uh, and the last uh, I checked, uh, Biden was leading in the Electoral College based on um, um, uh, projections of who's going to carry each state with 253 uh, votes. So within uh, striking distance of 270, but not there yet. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting for uh, the counting to uh, get to a point in states uh, such as Georgia and Pennsylvania and Nevada and Arizona. And let's not forget Alaska, little Alaska <laughs> up there. Uh, we're waiting for those to get to a point where those will be called. And I was thinking that I was looking for a metaphor and I was thinking that as much as we talk about uh, the horse race metaphor in elections, it feels like a race where and, and photo photo finish was the first thought that came to mind, but that's not quite it. It feels to me like it's a race where the horse, the, 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 the two horses who are in the lead are about four feet from the finish line. And suddenly for some reason, time has gone to slow motion. <laughs> and so we're just watching them. One of them is clearly like, uh, I'd say, uh, a, a head, uh, a head's length ahead, but we're just watching them slowly approach uh, the finish line. And the pundits are saying, I don't think it's likely that the one in second is going to overtake him, but you don't know, <laughs> we don't know for sure. Uh, but anyway, that's where we are right now. Um, but you've already noted, and actually the, the origin story of this episode was I saw on social media, you posted that uh, despite uh, potentially retaking uh, the White House, and it seems as if at this point, the smart money, knock on wood, is on Biden uh, taking the White House you noted that it's still the Democrats uh, who seem more likely to be developing 
loss narratives after this election. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? What led you to that? Yeah, thanks. I've been I've been really kind of interested in that. I'm, I'm writing a piece on that right now. Um, and yeah, I, sh- I, I, I should agree. When we started this conversation, there was still not a president-elect. Um, we, we will we will see what happens by the end. Um, this is this is in process. Um, but I yeah, I was really sort of struck that um, maybe it was as soon as Tuesday night um, or Wednesday morning that you know, and I, I don't have too many specific examples, but um, Democrats it seemed like to me were all over Twitter. Um, expressing disappointment. Um, And you had, uh, and and in part because um, it, it looked like this election was closer than it was supposed to be. Um, You know, just, just judging from what polling expectations were, um, uh, you know, Biden has, you know, while he seems to be in a, in a good place to win the presidency, he did not uh, get the percentages that it looked like he was going to. And importantly, like Democrats have lost a number of seats in the house. Yeah. um, uh, they were widely expected to take the Senate, and that is way more doubtful now. Um, so, you know, th- there was a little bit of disappointment there. But at the same time, like, they're about to take the White House. And, and you know, from Donald Trump, you know, they're about to depose a, uh, you know, a, a first-term president, which is pretty rare. Yeah. And, uh, and yet they were still sort of, they had already quickly moved into the circular firing squad with... Um, progressive saying, well, this is what happens when we do what you guys say and nominate a moderate. And it does, you know, it, it reduces our turnout and the moderate saying, well, this is what happens when you progressives talk about defunding the police and, and abolishing ice and you, and you make us look like socialists. And uh, it's, it just struck me. It's just, it's the same arguments Democrats have among themselves anytime they underperform in an election. Um, and it also sort of struck me that like, I mean, one of the lessons, this is, again, was one of the narratives built into my book. Um, One of the lessons that Democrats felt they learned from 2016 was that uh, they lost because they looked divided that year. Yeah. And that you had, you know, you, you, you had a lengthy challenge from Bernie Sanders. You had progressives and establishment at each other's uh, um, just just yapping at each other all year. And they didn't want to look that way uh, for 2020. And, you know, even people who did not agree with with Joe Biden on a lot of issues, they largely shut up throughout the year. Um, and the party really did. I, you know, they they you know, people even, you know, people like AOC and others would say, look, I have some disagreements with uh, with Joe Biden, but uh, we're all working together. We want to get Donald Trump out of the White House and we can have those arguments next year when it comes to governing. And they, they really maintained a very united front. Uh, until Tuesday. And now they no longer need to have that. Yeah. Um, and so they've been, they've been sort of stifling a lot of dissent all year. And now it's, now it's kind of coming out. So this is making me wonder about sort of one of the central points in my book, which was this, you know, I went in with this idea that um, the party that loses needs to construct, to construct a couple of narratives about why that loss came about and figure out what it did wrong. Um, but now I'm wondering if maybe that's just what Democrats do. Uh, maybe whether they win or lose, Democrats are always doubting themselves. Um, and Republicans try to never look back. Um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, this this conversation may change in the next few weeks. Um, you already have some Republicans that are trying to say, OK, the, the Trump year is over. We need to look on to the next thing now. But um, uh, I'm, I'm curious to watch this unfold over over the next weeks, weeks and months on this. Well, one of the things that comes to mind is 
that after Trump's not just nomination in 2016, but after his, uh, for most of us, his stunning victory in 2016, the general election, I, I did see at least anecdotally some instances of Republicans um, engaging in self-reflection. And it, it wouldn't be a case of uh, learning from loss. If anything, it would be a case from learning from, from their party winning. Uh, but an example of one, one person I have in mind is Charlie Sykes. Uh, so a longtime Republican radio show host and now podcaster over at the, the Bulwark. Uh, and uh, a prominent voice within the Never Trump uh, movement uh, among um, uh, conservatives, among, I would add, uh, add on, an, on an editorial note, among those whom, whom I consider, I as a progressive, consider principled uh, conservatives uh, who um, have uh, been wrestling with uh, what it means that their party nominated and ultimately uh, took the White House with someone who has been willing to flout democratic norms in the way that Trump has, to engage in explicit racist and misogynistic and xenophobic uh, comments in the way that Trump has. And, and at one point I've heard someone, I don't recall who, but someone on uh, Sykes' podcast, also a uh, Republican and conservative, say that, um, speaking of Trump's base, that um, we knew who we had locked in the basement all these years. Uh, we knew the kind of uh, racism that uh, was among uh, the ranks of our party and that we were often willing to subtly or not so subtly play to with dog whistle politics. But as long as we, when we took, when we took office, they sort of stayed in the background, we would just uh, maintain that. And now there's, there's been some willingness to confront their own complicity uh, in not confronting that uh, head on. That's my sense. Uh, do, do you feel similarly about that or do you see things differently? I think that's right. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think as, uh, you know, learning from winning. I mean, there's certainly some of that, you know, to some extent, like the, the opposite of learning from loss is sort of like, to some extent, like Julia Zari's work on mandate politics or yeah. um, uh, the Grossbeck Peterson Stimson uh, book on mandate politics that like, you know, when you, when you win and you, you weren't expected to, um, right. people learn lessons from that too. And, uh, you know, and people think, oh, well, they're, you know, they tapped into something, they're doing something right. You know, maybe, maybe we should look into that. I, I think the way you're characterizing it is, is correct that, you know, for decades, really, I mean, at least this goes back to at least Nixon, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, there were these, these kind of, uh, you know, downscale whites with at least some, some, uh, you know, some latent bigotry there that, um, the politicians could give sort of a wink and a nod to um, with dog whistles, um, but you never really go fully in that direction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you always sort of have some plausible deniability. And, you know, on the on the surface, you're talking about things like uh, tax cuts and you're, you know, you're talking about like, you know, respect for institutions and things like that. And and that's usually enough like that, you know, those voters sort of would get that, but then they would turn out. And it, it's interesting if you if you talk to folks like. Well, I, Steve Bannon, I wouldn't recommend you talk to him, but uh, or like, you know, or Kellyanne Conway or, you know, people in that orbit back in like 2012. Yeah. Coming out of um, Mitt Romney's loss. Yeah. You know, there was a, a big chunk of the Republican Party that year that they kind of embraced the party's big postmortem 
idea that uh, they were losing elections because they were alienating people. They were they were seen as too racist. They were seen as as too sexist and they needed to be uh, be more embracing of immigrants and that 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 was the right path to go in the future. There were it was a smaller group, a smaller faction. Again, you know, Kellyanne Conway and others um, who were making this argument that there were uh, there were other white voters out there that were not showing up for these elections because they didn't feel like people were speaking to them and and the dog whistles weren't enough. And if you could make more explicit appeals to them, um, they would show up and. In many ways, I mean, I, I don't know if at the time, like Donald Trump was the candidate had in mind, um, but he was, I think, a ratification of that theory that, you know, if you if you sort of like get rid of the polite pretense and just uh, have yeah. someone kind of lean hard into to racialize language that um, there were there were some bigoted whites who would show up for that and yeah. it would really boost turnout. And it it may sort of. You know, I think there's a balance there because it probably also cost them some other uh, votes at the, um, you know, among you know, among more moderate voters. Um, it's it's I think a large part of the reason why you know the you know Trump has come nowhere near a, a popular vote uh, majority. Yeah. Um, but it it has at least in 2016 it turned out enough people uh, to get him a, a pretty narrow electoral college win, and so that's that's there. And I I, I think Sykes is characterization is is largely correct there that um the party got a sense that oh this you know these voters are available to us i I think there's some question whether they whether those voters are motivated by the rhetoric and that you know another candidate could do this sort of thing Mm -hmm. that maybe i don't know what you know who they would come up with for 2024 like you know whether we're talking like a tom cotton or something like that um could uh actually could have similar Trump-like rhetoric and actually pull those voters out or whether those people were specifically drawn to a, you know, kind of an irreverent celebrity like Trump. Yeah. Um, that it, it may be kind of sui generis there. I, you know, that's something we'll probably find out. I think there's going to be some arguments and fights within the Republican Party about just what exactly they need to do for the future here. I have a there's a bit of analysis I have in the book um, where I look at media narratives, which mm-hmm. is you know similar to the narratives that that activists construct. Um, I looked at uh, you know just kind of a content analysis of news stories uh, following you know in the weeks and months following the 2016 election, just you know see if I could categorize all those all the different stories and say, you know, what did they say it was, was it because of problems with the campaign or was it, uh, was it particular personality problems of Hillary Clinton or was it identity politics or Russian interference or whatever? And uh, I compared that with uh, these media narratives that were generated after 2012 and after 2008. Um, and essentially after 2008, like there, there were a few different, media stories that uh, emerged to explain why Barack Obama won, but um, the media really converged on a, a kind of a single narrative very quickly there. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it was just sort of a combination of, uh, you know, he was, he was an unusually skilled candidate, but also you have a very unpopular party thanks to a, a depression and a war a recession and a war. And 
Um, it didn't seem that wasn't a confusing outcome for anyone. People expected yeah. Obama to win. He won by a, by a healthy margin and uh, it, it, it didn't shock anyone. So people came to quick terms of that. Fairly similar in 2012. Um, the media came to, you know, very quick consensus about why that happened. Uh, 2016, the media was really confused about, they had a lot of different narratives about why that election came out as it did. And even a year later, they had more narratives. They, as they, they didn't converge on a story uh, after 2016. They actually became more confused as time went on yeah. about, why, about why that election came out as it did. Um, so it, it's, you know, it wasn't just these Democratic activists. It's a lot of political observers. I think to this day, I, I still have a, a lot of different stories. And this was... When I was interviewing activists for this book, that was generally the first question I would ask was, why did Hillary Clinton lose? In a lot of cases, that's an hour long conversation. <laughs> um, people just have a lot of theories and they just uh, and sometimes it was a chance for them to, you know, air some grievances with the campaign. Like, you know, I told them this thing was going wrong. They didn't want to listen to me. And, um, but uh, a lot of the times I think they were just sort of wrestling in, in a kind of a psychological way um, with how did this thing occur that I didn't think could happen? Um, just trying to, you know, trying to, you know, generate some narrative to, to explain a, a strange phenomenon in the universe, which is, you know, always sort of a tricky psychological process. So right now in my current state of residence, uh, Maine, I suspect that many Democratic voters and members of state Democratic leadership are trying to learn from loss uh, regarding our recent U.S. Uh, Senate race in which uh, the Democratic nominee, Sarah Gideon, despite being a slight favorite um, in uh, many polls, uh, including at 538, uh, Gideon lost uh, to a longtime Republican incumbent, Susan Collins. And this was the subject of an op-ed in the New York Times that I just saw today by a former executive editor of the Weekly Standard, Robert Messenger, uh, who uh, the byline was Blue Hill, Maine. So he, I presume, has a residence there. And he argues that Maine voters are driven in their uh, voting decisions by local factors, at least in Senate races, much more so than national issues such as the importance of uh, Democrats uh, taking back uh, the U.S. Uh, Senate. And in thinking about uh, Messenger's argument, which was that uh, Maine voters could, uh, as we did um, uh, for the most part, uh, support uh, Donald Trump. Uh, he's getting three electoral votes from Maine, although the one from our more conservative, I'm sorry, um, uh, Biden is getting three electoral votes uh, from uh, Maine, although the one from our more conservative second district is going to Trump. But the point is, by and large, uh, the state went for uh, Biden. Um, uh, both of our uh, members of the U.S. House are going to be Democrats. Nevertheless, uh, voters uh, favored uh, Collins uh, in a statewide election. And so in thinking about Messenger's claim that at least in Maine, voters are driven by local issues rather than national, I was thinking that when a party is trying to learn from loss, it could attribute that loss to national factors. So telling a story about what needed to be done differently uh, to address issues of national concern, or it could focus on more local issues. And it seems as if there's a risk if the party leaders attribute a loss to factors at the wrong level of analysis. 
I wonder what your thoughts are on those issues. I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea and I am, it's honestly like the, the main case, obviously something I've been thinking about a lot in comparison to a Senate race I was watching a lot here in Colorado, which was um, uh, Senator Cory Gardner, who just lost his reelection bid um, quite handily. And I, if you look at sort of the 2016 election results, um, Maine and Colorado look roughly equally blue. Okay. They're like, so they're, they're, they're both like, you know, somewhat democratic leaning States, you know, they're not, not quite California or Massachusetts, but you know, (laughs) still, uh, you know, this is still with a with a fair Democratic lean to them. And they both had these Republican incumbents who were, uh, you know, trying to fit, trying to sort of navigate a path to reelection. And Collins and Gardner took very different paths to that. Um, and in a in an era where I think we're seeing, you know, and, and uh, this is where I disagree somewhat with uh, with that writer, um where um, politics and particularly Senate races are becoming increasingly nationalized. Um, this is, uh, I think, uh, you know, Dan Hopkins has this wonderful book on, uh, you know, the, the media role that, that, that plays in that and, um, and other trends that have just made and you know, just a decline in split ticket voting and just have made um, Senate races so, um, so turning on national events. Um, this is something that was, I, I think, really haunting Cory Gardner here in Colorado, who, you know, uh, whenever he could, you know, whenever he was talking, when he's running his own ads or when he was campaigning um, and giving speeches, he would try to focus things on things he'd accomplished here in Colorado. You know, he was mm-hmm. trying to talk about his support for uh, for the outdoors and, uh, you know, just try and keep things focused on local issues, which, you know, he looked somewhat better than that. But he was so tied to Donald Trump and it was and you um and also, more importantly, like voters were very focused on Donald Trump. Voters have been very focused on national issues, particularly in the middle of a recession and the middle mm-hmm. of a pandemic. Um, it's hard to get people to pay attention to other issues in that in that kind of environment. And uh, I think what could have helped Gardner um, was something that he notably really refused to do was to distance himself from Trump. He he governed as a very mainstream Republican. He had a, he had a, you know, a a conservative voting record um, and given numerous opportunities to criticize president Trump. He tended to pass up on those. He, he never crossed president Trump on a vote. Um, He never even looked like he was thinking hard about it. Um, And that was clearly like the most sensitive issue for him. And I, I think he, you know, he was making a decision based on that. Like he didn't want to depress turnout on the Republican base or, you know, risk the president's ire because that has, that has hurt some other people's career. Yeah. And that's very different from what Susan Collins did, which is, you know, she looked for all sorts of opportunities to at least symbolically uh, display moderation. And even if she generally voted with what Trump wanted on things like impeachment or Supreme court justices, you know, she made a real show of struggling with it um, and expressing a lot of concern and furrowing her brow and, (laughs) um, and, and signaling that she was not completely in the president's camp. And uh, you know, my impression, and I, you know, we'll probably know more about this as we learn more from exit polls and things like that in in the coming weeks um, was that, you know, I don't think Susan Collins necessarily 
got Mainers to forget about national politics and just focus on local things. I think they just they saw her as somewhat distinct from Trump, I, I think, and then and distinct from the rest of the Republican Party. I mean, she really does have a moderate voting record. Um, and so I, I think things really still were focused on national politics. And she did an effective job insulating herself from that um, rather than necessarily changing the the conversation or getting people to think about local issues. So Gardner's uh, defeat um, is one data point that argues against uh, a more general trend that I see in this election and others, which is that there seems to be, at least when you look at statewide races, there seems to be a swath of states in the U.S., uh, and I would characterize this swath as running from Appalachia to the Deep South to the Mountain West, where Democrats seem to struggle in statewide races, although what's happening in Georgia uh, might also eventually be uh, another uh, counterpoint to this argument. But insofar as there are states, uh, say less populous states, uh, where Democrats struggle in statewide statewide races, uh, more so than Republicans, I wonder why you think that is. And I I recognize there are probably multiple parts to this answer, but what are one or two factors that come to mind as likely driving that? I'm sorry. I'm going to have to ask you to back up and repeat that question. Um, sure. I just, got, I, I just got a flurry of text messages that apparently CNN has called the race. <laughs> oh, uh, well, <laughs> do tell. Uh, so, so is it is it Georgia or Arizona and Nevada that just came through, or or Pennsylvania? I'm guessing it's Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't know how they called this. I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Oh, no, let's see, no, New York Times I, well, has it. All right, so I'm going New to New York, York Times. Times. It's it's, it's yep. Pennsylvania. They call it Pennsylvania. Yep. 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 Well, there you go. Um, and I'm sure that Trump will immediately issue a concession speech. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he. I'm sure he'll say our long national nightmare is over and it's time to heal. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, um, uh, well, I look forward to seeing uh, what uh, the Republican response will be. But uh, uh, but yeah, totally understandable that you would uh, be distracted uh, by that. that. That was actually an interesting yes. moment. Do you mind if I leave that in the final episode? <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. So, I apologize uh, yeah, for being pot- distracted. I tried to shut off everything and apparently <laughs> no, I was unsuccessful. No worries. Uh, no, I, 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 it's good to know. Uh, so, well, um, as I look at this uh, electoral map, I see a swath of red across the middle of the country um, uh, with uh, a potential uh, exception of Georgia where it's red. It's red. And so uh, these are states where in the Electoral College, uh, Trump uh, is the winner. And these are states that, it's my impression, generally Democrats uh, have struggled in statewide races, although the, the Cory Gardner uh, defeat in Colorado is a counterexample to that. But I wonder... In those states where Democrats, um, say in those states uh, in the middle of the country where Democrats have struggled in statewide races, I wonder if you have a sense of one or two factors that might be responsible for that. So, honestly, this is an interpretation of this election. I'm I'm still kind of mulling over here. I mean, yep. it, it seems in many ways that um, uh, Trump ran well behind his party Um that it, which is in, in some ways really peculiar because he seems to be, you know, like in many ways, he is, I think, responsible for uh, very high turnout 
uh, among yep. Republicans. Like he, yep. he got them to the polls, but not necessarily to vote for him, um, which or so maybe they were just showing up to you know vote against what they perceived as liberals. Um, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure how that works. Either that or you, know, you can re- look at it the other way uh, as Biden ran well ahead of his party. Yeah. Um, but what it looks like is that, you know, this was a very high turnout election on both sides. Um, and there were a fair number of, I guess, moderate to conservative voters who probably in many elections would vote Republican and probably in a lot of down ballot races did vote Republican, um, but could not pull the lever for Donald Trump this year. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, you know, I think we saw a little bit of evidence of that in 2016. I think it's become more acute problem um, in that. And I, and I think we saw, you know, a lot of what the Biden campaign was doing was focusing on Trump's personality, which is something that the Clinton campaign did as well in 2016. And just say, you know, look how toxic this man is. You know, look, look what a what a poor leader he is. And I think that connected to some extent, but it did not. People did not apply that to the Republican Party at large. Yeah, um, they applied it to Trump. And I think a lot of Republicans who were disgusted by Trump and simply felt they they could no longer support him and they either voted third party or they voted for Biden. Um, they still managed to vote Republican further down the ticket. Um, and so that's you know, I think that's in some ways kind of surprising because we've, I think, become used to the idea that we have uh, you know, that there's very little split ticket voting. Obviously, there was some of that this year. Um, but, but, but I mean, as, as I look at like states like, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, my home state of Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, I'll stop there. But, uh, these are states where, uh, perhaps if Texas turns purple, this is going to change. But for many of these states, um, and I'll focus on my own home state of Arkansas, where, uh, all the U S uh, house representatives are Republicans. Both senators are Republicans. The governor is Republican Democrats, at least post realignment have struggled, uh, to do well in statewide elections or congressional district elections in a state like Arkansas. Um, and w- one theory that I've, that I've heard is that in such states, uh, there's an aversion to a perceived elitism, a kind of coastal elitism, uh, within, within the democratic party. Do you give any credence to that theory? I mean, it's that's certainly the rhetoric that Republicans use. Um, I I think it's used fairly conveniently. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, you know, I've heard, uh, you know, I guess it's like, you know, Republican Southern politicians complaining about like those, you know, you know, we don't want some elitist New Yorkers taking over the the federal government, you know, but forgetting that there's a there's a New York billionaire living in the White House right now. Right. you know, the, the elitism is a is a convenient code word. It can mean a lot of different things, but um, uh, that's just you know, it's it's one of the epithets that they currently use for liberal Democrats. And I think you know, overall, I think we're just seeing a continued polarization um, of the states, um, where even as the uh, you know the the national government becomes you know con- <laughs> a lot more competitive. Um, you know, this is what Francis Lee has written about in a, in a recent book that, you know, we have like, you know, we're, we're living through this really unusual uh, era of, of high competition for the presidency and, and the Congress. 
Um, but within states, there's, you know, a lot of states are becoming simply less competitive. Um, Colorado has moved more blue. Uh, you know, a lot of New England has moved more blue at the same time that, you know, a lot of southern states have moved more red. Um, you know, particularly, and, and this is not necessarily at the presidential level, but certainly within those states um, in in statewide offices um, that just, you know, you're, you're just seeing uh, this is, I think, sort of a continued uh, sorting out of the populations um, that it's just it's increasingly you have, you know, single party uh, control of the state legislature that, you know, I, I don't know what the I guess we, we still don't know the results for all the state legislative races, but um, yeah, unless I'm mistaken, there's, I think, only one state coming out of the 2018 election that still had split uh, party control in their state legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you just have, you know, the, the states are becoming increasingly either very red or very blue. So early in the book, when talking about what defines major parties, you suggest that major parties are, on the one hand, coalitions of groups, but they can also be defined ideologically. And uh, insofar Mm -hmm. as the Democratic Party is ideological, at the core of that ideology is egalitarianism. Uh, Am I recalling that correctly? That is correct. Yeah. And I would think that in some of those states that I described, uh, also, again, post-realignment, the gravitation away from the Democratic Party could... uh, be related to racial polarization as well. And so an aversion uh, among at least Republican voters to that egalitarianism. Yeah. And I, you know, I was really, I was kind of focusing on, um, I guess this, this sort of disagreement within the the political science literature uh, about, you know, just the nature of, of the current democratic and Republican coalitions. Um, uh, you know, there's this, uh, well, wonderful book, Asymmetric Politics by uh, Matt Grossman and Dave Hopkins um, that suggests that, you know, the, the parties are basically very different structures that, that, you know, they, they characterize Republicans as being, um, as being motivated by ideology. Um, and, you know, they, that they have contests about who is the most conservative candidate. Um, and whereas Democrats, uh, they, they see them as that's about group coalitions. That's about, yeah. Um, you know, just, you know, like, like whether you have, uh, groups of, of, of black voters or Latino voters or, or LGBT voters or something like that. And, um, and they're sort of all competing for different, for, for power within the, within the party, but it's less specifically about ideology. And, and I was sort of taking the, the side, uh, in my book that, you know, this coalitional orientation on the democratic side is a form of ideology, uh, hmm. that, um, uh, you know, where that sort of egalitarianism among different groups, that the idea that, you know, different groups within the coalition should be well represented mm-hmm. um, and, and should have a chance to, to make their, their case um, is, is actually the, the party's core ideology. Um, even if the language that they use in describing it is more group oriented. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I don't think the parties are actually as distinct from each other as, as that book argues. Yeah. Um, but they but they use very different language in, in, you know, in talking about fights within their party.
Many people are praising Stacey Abrams and her organization Fair Fight for what we're observing in Georgia as they have uh, mobilized many voters, including voters uh, of color. I wonder if, insofar as you've been following that, if you see broader lessons for southern states such as Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and Tennessee uh, that also have substantial black populations, especially Mississippi, where more mobilization could potentially turn historically red states uh, at least purple. Yeah, I think this is a this is an interesting moment, and that's and and the Georgia result is one of those that will get a lot of attention, uh, and, I, and I think rightly so. I mean, you know, who, who that wasn't necessarily one of the the big flips that um, that people saw coming, yeah. um, and and no Democrat has really seriously contested Georgia in a while. Um, so, you know, it was interesting, like, because prior to, you know, the actual election night, like Georgia was looking contestable by Democrats, but also so was Texas. Yeah. Um, so was South Carolina for a while. I mean, where it looked like Jamie Harrison might actually take that state. Yeah. Um, and uh, but, you know, I think now at this point, uh, you know, much more of the focus will be will be on Georgia. And I think, yeah, Stacey Abrams is is looking really smart right now. And she has been talking about. Um, the importance of mobilization and the importance of uh, voter access and, you know, trying to overcome barriers to uh, voter turnout. Um, and I think, you know, what's what I think is going to be really healthy for the Democratic Party is that, uh, you know, they will see that path as, as a way to go forward, that like there are, you know, there are places that they haven't been contesting in the past uh, that they could be. Um, if they focus more on, you know, simply getting Democratic people uh, to the polls or, Demo- you know, Democratic leaning voters, um, easier access to the polls and focusing more on on barriers that a lot of these voters have have uh, faced. And so I think in, in many ways, you know, that's that is a healthy lesson. I don't know how much it will translate to other races. Um, you know, again, that might have been a particular result of either Biden's strengths or Trump's weaknesses at the top of the ticket. Um, I guess we'll get a, we'll get a good sense of this because it looks like there's going to be two Senate runoffs in January yep. in yep. Georgia. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll get a sense of what this kind of mobilization looks like there when it's, it's not a Trump election. Um, but uh, that, you know, that could be a, a really interesting lesson. And I think, you know, I think Democrats will pro- probably in South Carolina, I mean, I that was this was really a fascinating year there, um, where a you know it was it was the first time in a very long time that the that people were focusing on the general election as something remotely competitive, and you know they just they haven't even bothered with serious voter turnout there in general elections because you know just no one saw it as a realistic thing, um. And I, I think it's healthy when a state suddenly looks somewhat competitive and people start sinking resources into it and saying, you know, this is there. There are victories potentially here that we need to that we need to be focusing on. So that's you know, that's one of those areas where it's possible for a party to overlearn, um, you know, to, to learn too much from hmm. uh, what may be a one off election. But if it if it results in the party sort of 
investing, you know, resources into places where they didn't invest them before and getting people to turn out um, who, you know, they had largely dismissed previously. I think that's, and, and to focus on things like vote suppression uh, where, where they may had not just taken it seriously as a problem before. I think that's probably healthy for a party going forward. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Seth Maskett for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about Maskett or the issues we discussed, including how you can get a copy of his new book, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you are a Twitter user, you can mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags or you can go to apple podcasts and post a rating and or a review or to offer more private feedback you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com to become a financial supporter of tatter go to patreon.com and find the page for tatter and you can sign up to become a patron but be aware If you are currently a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support. But for everyone else, come on in. The water's just fine. And I want to say thank you to all current patrons. I also want to send a very special note of gratitude to my colleague, Kathy Lowe, and to her student, Sophie Ball. While I was recording this interview, at one point I needed to ask for their assistance, and they were very helpful. So thanks to both of you. And having said all of that, and as always, thanks for listening, and be well.